0: hppodcraft.com The day had been one unceasing fall of snow from sunrise until the gradual withdrawal of the vague white light outside indicated that the sun had set again. But as usual at this hospitable and delightful house of Everett Chandler, where I often spent Christmas and was spending it now, there had been no lack of entertainment and the hours had passed with a rapidity that had surprised us. A short billiard tournament had filled up the time between breakfast and lunch, with badminton and the morning papers for those who were temporarily not engaged, while afterwards, the interval till tea time had been occupied by the majority of the party in a huge game of hide-and-seek all over the house, barring the billiard room, which was sanctuary for any who desired peace. But few had done that. The enchantment of Christmas, I must suppose, had, like some spell, made children of us again and it was with palsied terror and trembling misgivings that we had tiptoed up and down the dim passages, from any corner of which some wild screaming form might dart out on us. Then, wearied with exercise and emotion, we had assembled again for tea in the hall, a room of shadows and panels on which the light from the wide-open fireplace, where there burned a divine mixture of peat and logs, flickered and grew bright again on the walls. Then, as was proper, ghost stories, for the narration of which the electric light was put out so that the listeners might conjecture anything they pleased to be lurking in the corners, succeeded, and we vied with each other in blood, bones, skeletons, armor, and shrieks.
1: That is the intro to E.F. Benson's spooky Christmas tale between the lights and it's time to prepare for the Yule Lads get out the Saturnalia stockings and don the Winter tide trilby because the festive season is upon us
2: yes one of our listeners and I could not find the email right before we jumped on but he suggested that we call this month ghoul tide <laughs> and I like it I could not for the life of me find the comment but whomever said that please announce yourself on the comments for this show because ghoul tide is awesome and I'm going to use it
1: and this month we are doing all spooky Christmas themed tales mm. and we're not doing it alone we're doing it with one of our favorite guests. Maybe, maybe actually our favorite guest? Could be. Oh, I hate to say that because we've had a lot of great guests, but I think Ken might be my favorite. It's Ken Height. He's with us again.
2: Hey. Glad to have you back. Uh, what have you been up to lately? It's been quite a while since we've had you on the show.
3: Well, I went out and wrote uh, Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition, or the rules for that. And I've been now back in the Lovecraft minds working on Tour to Lovecraft the Destinations, the sequel to Tour to Lovecraft the Tales, and expanding. Tour to Lovecraft the Tales to include the best of the collaborations. Yes. Bigger, better, more. That's what people like now. And oh. that's what I've been doing.
1: <laughs> Ken, I got to say, I've played. Vampire 5th Edition. I've run it. I've read the whole book. I love it. I think it's amazing. I think it's the best new version of Vampire that's come out since all the, I don't know, there's revised and second and 20th anniversary edition, and all that jazz. It's moved it into the 21st century, and I think it is exquisite. I think it's a brilliant game. You've done an awesome job with it. Congratulations.
3: Oh, thanks so much. I mean, a lot of it, obviously, was Kareem Maramar, who did the design with me. Mm-hmm. Martin Elrickson's vision for what the game had to be in the 21st century, while still being true to the game that it was in 1991, when Mark did
2: it, I'm going to be a cheesy uh, game reviewer and say Vampire sucks, but in a good way.
3: <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> Thanks, BuzzFeed.
2: <laughs> Seven reasons you should be playing the new Vampire the Masquerade. (laughs) Number five will
3: surprise you. Yeah. (laughs) While we're in the gratuitous plug segment, I should mention that I have annotated every story in Robert W. Chambers' collection, The King in Yellow. Yes. Arc Dream Publishing is coming out with a prestige edition of in, I don't know, maybe it's real snakeskin. They didn't consult me, but it looks snaky on the on the webpage and illustrated by the great Sam Araya. And I have annotated the living bananas out of that book. It is the biggest, best darn Robert W. Chambers annotating that any man jack of us have ever done. And I'm very, very happy with it.
1: I believe it. The living
2: bananas is my favorite Timothy Dalton Bond movie. <laughs> A lot of people don't, don't rate that just because
3: so much of it is spent explaining tropical agriculture. <laughs>
2: continuing on with our our shameless plug section, you know what? We've got a sponsor this week. Do you? Octoon
1: Cthulhu Tactics!
2: It's based on the tabletop game from Modiphius Entertainment. Octoon Cthulhu Tactics is a turn-based strategy game pitting players against a rogues gallery of Lovecraftian beings controlled by the Third Reich. Take the reins of Charlie Company, an elite band of allied forces sent in to foil the Nazi plans and turn the tide of war. Developed by ARC Digital, Octoon Cthulhu Tactics is available now on PC, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. Find it on Steam and console stores today. Right. I've actually been playing a little bit of on my PS4, you have been as well, right, Chris?
1: Oh my god, I'm going crazy with it. Who
2: was that reader we heard at the top?
1: That was Edward NB. He is a great illustrator, and I suggest folks go check him out on Twitter at NB Illustrations. And on Instagram, at NBC Sketches.
2: Cool. We'll link out to those. Uh, thanks, Edward. So glad to have you on the show. On to the ghoul-tide tales. This is an E.F. Benson story we're covering. We've had some mixed results with him in the past. We liked that Caterpillar story a lot. Yes. We weren't very fond of the man who went too far. We've done no. a couple others as well. Yeah. Ken, do you have any experience with E.F. Benson?
3: I've read some, uh, just because you one does. <laughs> I haven't read a ton of Benson, because whenever I think... What would either reread M.R. James or read E.F. Benson for the first time. I always think, I'll just reread M.R. James. It's strong. <laughs> Obviously, everyone in the world has read The Bus Conductor, which is like his most anthologized story ever. Hmm. And then I've read uh, The Room in the Tower because there's a vampire in it. I think I've read <laughs> Mrs. Amsworth, which is his other big vampire story. I haven't dug deep into the Benson Oeuvre. And also, of course, he also wrote lovely novels of, of manners and social comedy, which I think is what maybe more people, certainly more people in Britain, know him as, because the Map and Lucia series became a TV show with the lovely Prunella scales in
1: it. Oh yes. This story takes place sort of at Christmas, but not really. I mean it's it's bookended at Christmas time, and then a little bit of it starts at Christmas, mm-hmm. but most of it isn't really. But in that opening paragraph, we can get the sense that it's definitely trying to capture that festive feeling.
3: Right. That's what you do. You tell Christmas ghost stories at Christmas.
1: Ken, have you told ghost stories at Christmas? Because that's something I've never actually done.
3: I have not done it, but then my Christmas Eves are not spent sitting around a roaring fire with my fellow inbred members of the upper crust. (laughs) My Christmas Eves are spent pounding eggnog and wrapping gifts, which is similar to telling horror stories, but in another way, it's more like acting them out. But
2: this is a very English thing, right? I mean, there's an M.R. James uh, every year, maybe an adaptation of M.R. James on the BBC. That's
3: right. When Charles Dickens was sort of inventing modern Christmas, he said, I've got all these ghost stories I can't sell. I'll put them in the Christmas issue. And then that became a thing because he was Charles Dickens and nobody else was. I guess in America, we kept the Christmas Carol, which is basically a big old ghost story, but we sort of left off the tradition of it being one of many ghost stories that you tell at Christmas.
2: Because M.R. James and J.H. Riddell, which we're going to do a story from this month, Algernon Blackwood, another person we're going to do a story from, Mm -hmm. they all sort of started doing this after Christmas Carol came out. I think prior to A Christmas Carol, the holiday was sort of waning in terms of popularity in England. I think because of the Industrial Revolution, people were working more and didn't even have that day off at the time. Something that a lot of people weren't celebrating until Dickens really popularized it with that novel.
3: He gave a way for you to celebrate Christmas in a secular way. So you wouldn't have to bring up religion and Mm. make someone mad. This is obviously the time when the Anglican church is sort of coming apart at the seams. Methodism has sprung up. It's the sort of hard shell evangelical faith back in those days. Mm. And also everyone's, some of the people are running back off to join the Catholic church. And that's a big scandal. So to be able to have Mm. Christmas stuff you do that is not talking about Jesus was a positive boon to the British middle class. We imported it because we were importing all kinds of things from the British middle class back in the day. Uh, And it turns out Christmas trees are great. And then when Coca-Cola discovered Santa, everything became perfect. And Christmas was born again in the reign of William McKinley the good.
2: After a day of vigorous badminton, which is how I do spend a lot of my holidays. (laughs) season and billiards a few folks settle down at this party by candlelight lantern light and they start telling their ghost stories we don't really hear what most of them are about but they seem to be pretty standard
1: Mm -hmm. the host of this party is this guy everard and he is not the narrator the narrator remains unnamed this is something of a tradition people come to everard's house they spend christmas there he's letting everybody tell their ghost stories first but finally he's encouraged to talk and he implies that his story is a real one Mm. He digs on ghost stories a bit, saying that screams and skeletons are a bit too played out. Uh, he says there are seven or eight skeletons in this room right now covered in blood and skin and other horrors.
3: Which, for my money, is literally the best line in the in the story. He <laughs> front loads it. It's up at the top.
2: <laughs> I agree. I definitely agree. In fact, I think that you could have ended the story right there. That could have been the italicized ending. <laughs> there are seven or eight skeletons in the room now!
1: Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> uh, he goes on to say that No, the nightmares of one's childhood were the really frightening things because they were vague. There was the true atmosphere of horror about them because one didn't know what one feared.
2: Yes, the unknowableness of it is what makes it scary. Whereas skeletons, I mean, let's tell the truth about this. When a skeleton is walking around on its own without the muscles and whatnot, it is, yes, it's unsettling because it shouldn't be able to do that. But it's not scary. Because I can whip a skeleton's ass. I don't care what magic (laughs) is propelling it.
3: (laughs) All right, skeletons. You heard. He's thrown down the
2: skin gauntlet.
1: Everard's wife tries to dissuade him from telling this story. She seems genuinely put off by this idea of hearing it again, but everyone gets really excited about it, especially because she seems like she doesn't want to hear it. He says, of course, it's nothing really, but it actually freaked him out. Yeah. He says, I only saw something without being able to swear what it was, and heard something which might have been a falling stone. So the narrator eggs him on, and his wife again tries to get him to just let it go and not bring up the story, but he doesn't. He wants to tell the story. Everard begins his tale with. everyone's complete attention it takes place the previous Christmas Eve some of the guests that are there this evening were there before the narrator included the weather last year was really nice so everybody was outside and Evard was relaxing in a chair and the narrator and Evard's wife were playing croquet together so everything seemed fine uh, and he stresses you know he's not sure whether or not this experience that he had was real but it felt very real And then he explains his experience. He
2: does take a dramatic pause before diving in, asking everybody to be quiet, and they all start listening to the snow. It says, we heard a soft scurry of the falling flakes against the panes, like the soft tread of many little people who stepped lightly and with the persistence of multitudes who were flocking to some rendezvous. Hundreds of little feet seemed to be gathering outside. Only the glass kept them out. And of the eight skeletons present, four or five, anyhow, turned and looked at the windows. It's a nice effect, but I think there's a little foreshadowing as Oh, well. yeah. Yes. Yeah, there is.
1: The previous Christmas, as he sat there watching his wife and the narrator play croquet, Everett was hit with a shiver, even though it was kind of warm outside. And then he saw something. He explains the backyard is walled, except for this one bit where there's just a gate, and the gate is the only entrance or exit to this section. Well, I looked up
0: and saw the lawn i could for one moment see it was still a lawn was shrinking and the walls closing in upon it as they closed in too they grew higher and simultaneously the light began to fade and be sucked from the sky till it grew quite dark overhead and only a glimmer of light came in through the gate
2: See, he describes how there was a dahlia that was in bloom that day, which is pretty crazy for the season, Mm. this bright red flower, and how when this vision hit, he tried to focus on this red flower. Then he, he says, but it was no longer a dahlia, and for the red of its petals, I saw only the red of some feeble firelight.
1: All of a sudden, he finds himself in a room with a very, very low ceiling, kind of like a cattle shed, but it's round. And he's sitting down and he looks up and sees that the rafters are in this place are very low. So it almost seems like it was for a very short person. It's dark except for the light coming from under the door. And he thinks that the door <laughs> leads straight outside. Now, the smell inside is foul. It smells like sweaty bodies and like something has been living in there for a long time. And there's this atmosphere of dread. This is an atmosphere of crime and abomination And he feels that humans lived in this place, but they were more like beasts indeed, kind of feral humans maybe. Uh, But they definitely lived a long time ago.
2: Yeah, I'd been taken and thrust down into some epic of dim antiquity. So this
1: is from a very long time ago. So he focuses on this dahlia, which is kind of a firelight instead of looking like a flower now. And he sees that there are shapes gathered around it, human but very small. And one of the shapes stands up and chatters. It's wearing a long shirt that goes down to its knees, but it's sleeveless and it's showing very hairy arms.
0: Then the gesticulation and chattering increased, and I knew that they were talking about me, for they kept pointing in my direction. And that my horror suddenly deepened, for I became aware that I was powerless. And could not move hand or foot. A helpless nightmare impotence had a possession of me. I could not lift a finger or turn my head. And in the paralysis of that fear, I tried to scream, but not a sound could I utter.
1: And then it's gone. The whole vision. Everett's back in the garden with the narrator and his wife. She's finishing the stroke she started before his vision. It all happened in an instant, but his face is covered in sweat. He says now he could have been having a nightmare during the day, a daymare, I guess, but he had no feeling of sleepiness before or after the vision.
2: So he somehow visited some prehistoric hovel that's occupied by little people?
1: Yeah. 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 If you remember from Arthur Mackin
3: mm. that there's this notion in Victorian anthropology that the fairies are memories of this primordial race of Picts that lived in Britain after the coming of the Celts, fled into the hills and the caves and the hollow places because they couldn't get enough food. They, they shrank down and devolved like cave beings and became pale, creepy cannibals that uh, lurked in the dark places of the world. And we see Mm -hmm. this, obviously, in Robert Howard's pics. We see it in Arthur Macken's uh, Little People, things like the White People. And then we see it all kinds of other places. Lovecraft uh, gets into it with the Martenses a little bit in The Lurking Fear. And Mm -hmm. we have it, of course, here in Benson's weird hallucination of being held captive, question mark, by
2: creepity little people. Mm -hmm. What was so frightening to people about These devolved... I mean, did did folks really believe that this might be lurking around the corner? I mean, was it something that was in the collective imagination? Or was it something that just these writers were fascinated with?
3: First of all, the collective imagination is hugely invested in questions of evolution and questions of purity and questions of what are we going to be like? Are we going to progress? Are we going to go forward? This notion that you play your cards wrong or you just get the bad dice... You will not progress, you will regress, you will devolve. You will become decadent, you will fall apart, and you will go off the evolutionary train, and you won't get to be one of the masters of the universe. Someone else will be the master of your universe, just like happened to these poor Picts. If you're running an empire, what's the thing that you don't want to happen? The next guy is to come and knock you on the head and take your empire away. Sure. Well, that's what this speaks to, is that this is that fear. Remember, you are on top now, but you got it by conquering the Celts, and they got it by conquering the Picts. And if you get conquered, you turn into either the the, the the Irish, who are all your servants, or you turn into something worse. You turn into sort of hideous cave people. And that's the psychological fear that it has, is that you're being supplanted by something next, and you're going to have to do that. Obviously, creepy, horrible cannibals in a cave is scary, viz, you know, uh, chuds or uh, the descent. But the, the degree to which it's sort of a social fear that is really speaking to Victorian Englishmen is because They're sitting on top of a very teetery pyramid, and they know what happens if it turns over, and it's not going to be good.
2: I have to imagine that if this was a Robert E. Howard story, he would have suddenly remembered his barbarian heritage and started cleaving these people. (laughs) But but since he's tied up, we think maybe the little
3: man is approaching him to eat it.
1: Uh Aha. I wonder. I'm I'm not sure about this because—well, let's continue, and we'll talk about it at the end here. After this point in the story, somebody in the audience stands up and turns on one of the electric lights. Evard laughs and asks if he should go on. But nobody really says anything. They just stare in anticipation. So he says that this vision haunted him for months and he never really got it out of his mind. He says, As if something had actually entered into my very soul as if some seed of horror had been planted there. And as the weeks went on, the seed began to sprout so that I could no longer tell myself that the vision had been a moment's disorderment only.
2: Yeah, he couldn't eat well. He wasn't sleeping well. It says he would wake every morning. Instead of drifting pleasantly into wakefulness, he'd wake abruptly and immediately be plunged into an abyss of despair. So this vision really messed him up. And I thought it's actually something that we don't see too awful much is when one little weird thing happens, how that it's so traumatic that it Triggers this depression that's lasting for mm, a really long yeah. time, which I think is cool. So
1: he tries to tell some folks to ease his burden. Talking about it might help. That uh, makes sense to me. Uh, he tells his wife and she laughs at him. <laughs> so he then tells his doctor, you know, like, I think I'm going a little bonkers here. And he laughs at him, too. <laughs> he needs a new wife and a new doctor.
3: I think his, his doctor may laugh in a, in a more reassuring, avuncular way as opposed to,
2: ha ha, you're seeing elves. Or the doctor just misunderstood the expression laughter is the best medicine. He's doing that for all of his
3: patients. Right. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, he does have a useful advice, which is go, if you're worried about tiny primordial proto Celt picks, go to Scotland. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) You're not going to see anyone in a remote foggy hill. First of all, does this doctor own like property in Scotland? Is that what this is? (laughs) Or is the doctor just say go away and the guy picks Scotland? Because. I don't know, if I'm worried that um, uh, the primordial Picts are going to crawl out of the hills and eat me, maybe the south of France is a better place to go. Well,
1: I mean, the doctor says just leave. So he yeah. first he goes to London, and then he goes to Scotland, right. to this place called Glen Collin, mm-hmm. uh, which is not far from the sea. It's a wonderful single moment. <laughs> when, he goes, when he goes on walks, people tell him, you know, bring a compass, because it gets really foggy sometimes, and you'll lose your visibility, and people get lost out here. And he's like, oh yeah, good, good. And so For a while, he remembers to bring his compass, but he gets lazy about it when he goes on these walks. One day, he's out on a hunt looking for a deer when uh, the trail leads him to this high point above the lock.
2: And he's gone out with his stalker, which I believe is a hunting guide, not just some Weirdo, he met on Tinder, I won't leave him alone. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah there's this. Uh, I think his name's Sandy.
2: Yeah, Sandy the Stalker. Right. You've seen the commercials. A, a <laughs> deer killed his parents when he was just a young boy. For him, hunting isn't just a good time, it's personal. Right. <laughs> Call for holiday specials.
1: So they get to this area, which is tough to climb down, and it's covered with heather and possibly adders as well. And there are holes that are being obfuscated by the heather.
3: Ideal vacation turf, by the way. Let me point out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it sounds like a blast don't worry it's misty and craggy but there's also
3: snakes everywhere Hurrah! <laughs> yay and that actually might be a, a little bit of a of an atmospheric moment because of course as we know from having read robert e howard one of the characteristics of these horrible little picts is that they are ophidian they have snake-like characteristics yeah. they lurk in holes and they're and they have poison and they bite you then obviously howard takes it to the snakiest possible extreme, but it's it's an element. And so if you're seeing snakes being referenced, just like the little pitter-patter of the, of the snowflake feet, we're maybe uh, laying down a base cord here, a little groove.
1: Yeah, the
2: worms of the earth. Exactly. exactly.
1: So eventually they find a deer, they hunt it down, a stag, and they kill it, and they pop it on the horse, and they're going to head home. Uh, this experience has made him forget his vision, for a bit at least, and it feels less real. So he's feeling better than he has in months the mist now is rolling in and sandy is stressing that they should get moving or they might get lost now sandy wants to go this rough way but there seems to be a much easier way to go
2: and that was true on the way up as well they really didn't need to go through the snake infested heather pits
1: <laughs> yeah this makes ever think that there's a reason sandy doesn't want to go that way but the mists is coming you know he forgot his compass so he's you know, a little bit worried about the situation since time is pressing Ever insists on going the easy way, and Sandy keeps making up these lame excuses to go the rough way.
2: Yeah, he even says there are a bunch of vipers on that path. We shouldn't take it, which is pretty unimaginative since, as you mentioned, they just climbed through Snake Alley. <laughs> Six snakes here, half a dozen snakes there. What's the big deal?
1: But eventually, Everard wins out.
2: Yeah, he just decides to take off on the easier path without, you know, asking. And Sandy has to simper along behind Which
3: him. of us is the English gentleman and which of us is the sidekick? Get it Right. <laughs>
1: So as they walk, the fog gets more dense and they get very wet, but Evard is feeling better than he's felt in months.
2: Says, I felt like a schoolboy home for the holidays. All this depression he's been carrying around is suddenly gone.
1: Stalker Sandy is muttering to himself and seems to be afraid of something, something that's really drowning out Evard's good vibes. They're really confused and it's gotten very cold and it soon begins to snow. It shouldn't be as confusing as it is, right?
2: Oh, it it, it was supposed to be like a straight
3: walk downhill and then you follow the river to the uh, house or whatever. Yeah.
1: But things are looking bad and they have a bit of a turn when they hit the river. Well, they don't
2: they can hear it far away to the left. So at least they have a guidepost, but they actually haven't hit it yet. But it's but at least they can hear it, so they know where it's at.
1: Yes. So this makes ever think that they're about maybe a mile off course from where they want to be. But now that they've got their bearings, everything's going to be fine. And then Edward hears Sandy give a choked cry from behind him, and then Sandy runs off into the mist. Edward yells after him, but Sandy, he gives no reply.
2: He was flying as if in terror of pursuit into the mists. I called to him, but got no reply and heard only the spurned stones of his running, uh, which is actually the scariest part of the story, maybe.
3: As uh, Benson has said, or as Everard has said at the beginning, and where Lovecraft says at the beginning of Supernatural Horror, it's the fear of the unknown. We don't know what could be going on, except that we've built it up so that this guy who knows the land clearly does not want to go down this haunted to death path. Mm -hmm. He just lost it
1: and he's out. You're right. This is very scary at this point because not only did the guy who knows what's going on just run off screaming, (laughs) you're left by yourself in the dark, in the snow. You don't know where you're going, what's going on, what's happening. So very powerless at this point. However, with Sandy gone, Everett feels some relief. Yeah. He sees like this well-defined blackness in front of him and he moves towards it up a very steep grass slope. The darkness seems to be some kind of shelter from the wind and the snow, so he moves into it. And then there is this wall that has a door... which light appears and then inside this door is a tunnel Uh, when he gets comes through on the other side the sky is lighter but the moon is still obscured by the clouds he says i was in a circular enclosure above me there projected from the walls some four feet from the ground broken stones which must have been intended to support the floor and then
0: two things happen the whole of my nine months terror came back to me for i saw that the vision in the garden was fulfilled And at the same moment, I saw stealing towards me a little figure as of a man, but only about three foot six in height. That my eyes told me. My ears told me that he stumbled on a stone. My nostrils told me that the air I breathed was of an overpowering foulness. And my soul told me that it was sick unto death. I think I tried to scream, but could not. I know I tried to move and could not. And it crept closer.
1: So after that, he screams and runs, luckily finding his way back to the lodge. The next day, Everett got this chill, which turned out to be pneumonia, and it laid him up for about
0: six weeks. Well, that is my story, and there are many explanations. You may say that I fell asleep on the lawn and was reminded of that by finding myself... Under discouraging circumstances In an old picked castle Where a sheep or a goat That, like myself, had taken shelter from the storm Was moving about Yes, there are hundreds of ways in which you may explain it But the coincidence was an odd one And those who believe in second sight Might find an instance of their hobby in it And that is all? I asked Yes it was nearly too much for me. I think the dressing bell has sounded. And that's
3: the end of the story. And that's it. So what happened to Sandy? Sandy can take care of himself, first of all. He's an experienced gilly. <laughs> he knows this <laughs> land like the back of his hand. Right. And he's apparently snake-proof. Huh? I want to know what happened to the horse with the stag on it. Yes, that was my second question. Sandy, he runs away. It's way too fast to be leading a very heavily burdened pony. Yeah. But we don't hear about the pony when he's going towards the, the old roundhouse. Yeah. Where does the pony go? Does it, is he just standing there on the hillside eating grass waiting for people to stop having psychic visions does <laughs> he come wandering back to his uh, stable eventually burdened down with a stag or did the pics get pony and stag for Christmas instead of uh, ever?
2: or did the horse see a bunch of miniature ponies and freak out and run away right yeah <laughs> saw a bunch of Shetland ponies and was like That's oh my right. God. do you think that these locations are causing the flashbacks or is this some kind of ancestral memory on the part of uh, the main character
3: I guess you could say it's either an ancestral memory of him having an ancestry that got killed and eaten by pigs after having had kids. Or it's a premonition that he's going to have this time slip moment The in the wrath. I mean, you can sort of have it go either way. It's, it's really, I think, an attempt by Benson to sort of say, here's something creepy. There isn't an explanation for it, but wouldn't it be creepy if it happened to you and it makes a good Christmas story? <laughs> I don't think that there's enough structure there that we can say... I mean, because Howard, of course, would have laid out the whole, well, this is my ancestral, blah, 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 et cetera. I mean, we know that he owns Glen Callan. He he talks about the property like he owns it. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's got ancestors there or some sort of family connection to it. But he's an Englishman. I mean, his his name is super English. So what he's doing ancestrally connected to some remote hellhole in Scotland doesn't seem very likely to me, right?
1: What's strange to me, the one thing that really... Trips me up is that he feels better when he goes back to that spot. Like he's not weirded out and he's not scared until right. he actually has the vision of the guy when he's in the old hut. That's when he finally it tips him over. But before that, even when he's lost and he's all by himself and his guy just screamed, he's like, you know, what? I feel better. I'm glad that guy's gone. Mm-hmm. I'm back to where I belong. Maybe. And if he belongs there, what what does that mean? Is are they? Is that an implication? Maybe that he's part of these people like maybe i'm going to lovecraft here or robert e howard that he's somehow related to these things
3: i mean here's here's a possibility right it says that his experience takes 9 months from christmas to october mm-hmm. and it says even the 9 months terror so what what takes 9 months having a kid yeah what if he is impregnated with this horrible vision on christmas eve which is christ's birthday uh-huh. and then gives birth to it Kind of around Halloween in October mm. in Scotland is that a oh. a situation where mm. some sort of weird uh, magic spell or a or, or something has happened that he is the carrier of this horrible event and then the reason he feels natural and at peace when he's going to that to that wrath because this is where as you say he's meant to give birth to it he's he's meant to sort of let it leave him and then of course the the birth is is traumatic like all births are he flees from it. Possibly because he doesn't want to think that he's like the, the seed of this story. But in a way, that's what it is, right? He's got this story element in him that shows up and then is expunged nine months later. And that and that's what happens. His wife is, of course, worried this kind of behavior last Christmas is what got him pregnant the first time. But a <laughs> story pregnant.
1: So, so what I'm taking away from your explanation here is that Jesus is a cannibal picked.
3: Yes, that's exactly what what you're trying to say. Okay, great. Jesus is a picked. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Just put that on the shirt.
1: What I liked about this story is that it did feel genuinely weird. It didn't feel like there was something to be explained. We're hitting all these key points. It's like something happened that is really beyond our senses and beyond, beyond our understanding. Yeah. But it feels like it. We could almost explain it, but just not quite. And I feel like that that is what makes a really good weird story. Mm-hmm.
3: He, he does come after the senses. I mean, first with the little feet that uh, that you called out, Chad, the, the, mm-hmm. the sound of that. And then when he literally meets the, the picked or sees the picked, he, he says his eyes told him that there was the little figure. His ears told him that he stumbled on a stone. My nostrils told him that it was un- overpoweringly foul. And my soul mm-hmm. told me that it was sick unto death. And so he adds the soul to the senses yeah. in kind of a weird, uh, literally a weird, unexplainable way that is, that is, it's very strong. It's a, it's, a, it's a good bit. It's just weirdly, it was set in this strange Christmas story frame. Yeah. Robert E. Howard would have, like you say, there would have been a, a great deal of kicking and biting and stabbing in this story. <laughs> uh, if he'd had that.
2: Well, I think it's also a possibility that instead of going into the past, like somehow he's having a vision of the future and maybe he's seeing a group of elves at Macy's you know, take their break. <laughs> well, <laughs> Ken, it's been so great to have you discussing this with us on this episode. We miss you.
3: Always great to be back. Anytime, any story, you you know where to find me.
2: I'd like to take a moment to thank some of our patrons. I want to thank
1: Carol McColge. I want to thank Craig Dallimore. I want to thank James Rogers. Thanar Banda. Thank you, Aaron Sprinkle. Simon Coward, thank you. David Wetzel, thanks so much. Darren Buxbaum, thank you so much. Tomb Juice, you are awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I want to thank Ryan Myers.
2: And of course, please check out Octum Cthulhu Tactics, a turn-based Nazi Lovecraft game, available now on PC, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. You can find it on Steam and console stores today. Ken, you have any uh, parting thoughts for our audience? Check out uh, my annotated uh,
3: Robert W. Chambers King in Yellow, illustrated by Sam on arcdream.com.
1: Well, that's all we have for this week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Kenneth Height. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPpodcraft.com
0: (laughs) HPpodcraft.com